0: Well, I would draw your attention this morning back to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 7. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the... formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, we come humbly before you this morning, acknowledging, Lord, that we are but dust. We are thankful that the Holy Spirit comes and breathes life into into dust. Lord, be with us as we know you have promised to be as we look into your word this morning. May we worship in spirit and truth, seeking to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, bless your word bless those who hear it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you, have you ever watched a master craftsman? You ever watched a master craftsman? I wish that I was a master craftsman. I remember back a a long time ago, going back years and years. Uh, We would go back to Missouri in our childhood. Either we were living in Missouri or living in South Carolina or Montana, and we would go back to Missouri. Uh, my grandmother on my mom's side would always take us to a place in Branson called Silver Dollar City. Now uh, this is still a source of some pretty vivid memories for me. Uh, my kids can probably attest to that. <laughs> Talk about it quite frequently. Uh, We lived away from our grandparents for a good portion of our childhood. Uh, And this was always something that my grandmother would do when we were back and spending time with them. Well, this place, Silver Dollar City, uh, it's a little bit different today than it was when I was growing growing up back in in my childhood days. Um, I've taken my kids there so it can be part of their memories as well but it has changed uh, it's much more about rides it's much more about roller coasters and water rides now but uh, as a child there were fewer of those and there were a lot more of the craftsman part uh, it's kind of like going back in time into the 1800s and the crafts and the the uh, skilled workers that would do things back in that day um, and there's still some of that thankfully and I'm glad that my children have got to see part of that, but unfortunately now it's not as much as it once was. I guess it doesn't hold younger people's attention today the way it did back when I was a child. But it's something I remember well and probably always always will. Um, often this one place in particular, this one shop in particular that, particular that we would go to probably could walk in and, and find my way there without the map. But you would find this this person that would be sitting at a bench, and he would take this old dead piece of wood, and he would take out his tools, and he would shave, and he would chisel away at that wood, and he would take chunks of that wood off, and then all of a sudden, some amazing scene would just pop out of this piece of wood. Uh, it always amazed me, the skill of the craftsman. Whether it was a, a lamp or a a mantle or other, some, some other decorative piece, uh, this, this image would just appear. It might be an animal, it might be a, a mountain scene, or it may even be the face of a man. They often took these um, limbs off of a dead tree and They would have the face of a man carved in that by this master craftsman. Other times it might have been in the potter's cabin. One of those throughout this place called Silver Dollar City where the craftsman would take a lump of clay, place it on a wheel, and he would would wet it down and start to form a vessel as, as the skilled hands of this craftsman would shape and mold this lump of clay into something useful. Not only useful, but oftentimes just beautiful and it may have been the glass blower and this is i I remember taking the kids specifically to this because there were several glass blowers working when we went the last time that would take this blob of 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 glass and put it in a furnace and then they would attach it to this long metal tube this hollow metal tube and after it heated it was heated he would blow into this tube and the, the glass would kind of swell and then he would start to spin that tube And use some tools in this craftsman's hand to shape and mold that into something that was either decorative or useful. He might add some glass here or there to it and heat it back up and blow into that tube a little bit more to get it just right. And then he might add some some dust to it that would cause the glass to be a certain color. And he would do this over and over again until it gave He gave it its shape and its form. Each of these craftsmen, these skilled artists, making something usable, something beautiful, out of something that in and of itself was pretty much unusable and undesirable when it was looked at on its own. And this is truly a sight to behold. And if you all have not been to some place where they do this type of thing, I would encourage you to go. It is fascinating to watch these master craftsmen uh, do their trade. But I have yet to see a single one of these creations, use air quotes for that, quote, these creations, a single one of these things that these master craftsmen have made come to life. Never seen it happen. Not even the glass blower who blows into that tube with his breath to that piece of glass that's attached has never given life to that piece of glass. He's never imparted life to that which he has made. This is something far beyond their skill or their power to do. Well, this morning, we just read of a craftsman, a creator, Who alone has the power to form according to his own intention and have this this thing that he formed come to life as he breathes into his work the breath of life? Now, before we really begin this morning, before we get into this passage, I want to make an apology of sorts. This is not an apology where one confesses or asks for forgiveness but an apology in terms of a defense. There's much that we will discuss and that we've already discussed and that we will be discussing as we go forward here in Genesis that is a repetition of what we have already said or already stated. I don't ask for forgiveness for this, but instead make a defense for this. Uh, there is a reason for repetition, and there is a need and reason for building up the foundations of what Scripture is revealing to us through the creation account in the first few chapters here in Genesis that follow it. Scripture often uses repetition to place emphasis and importance on certain things, and this will happen as we go. So as we look at this, I'll have you remember that we just finished last week looking at Genesis 2:1 through 3. Uh, These verses and chapter divisions that we have are, they're extremely useful. They're not original to the text. They are not inerrant. They're not infallible, these divisions. Um, This that we looked at last week, the first three verses of chapter two, I hold pretty firmly that they actually belong with what's in chapter one. We come to something sort of new here. In chapter 2, verse 4, Genesis 2, 4 reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and made the heavens. The subject matter, starting with verse 4 here in chapter 2 through verse 24, begins here in verse 4 in these words. These are the generations. The word generations is a word which means the history of, or a genealogical record of successive generations, or an account of man and his descendants. It's one of the ways we can define major divisions within the book of Genesis. Within the scope of this book, there are 10 such divisions that start in this manner. If you have a study Bible, and I know some people don't bring study Bibles to to church because they're rather large, but in a study Bible, if you look in the outline of Genesis, I know it's this way in the ESV, I know it's this way in MacArthur's study Bible, and I believe it makes mention of it in the Reformation study Bible, it will have these, it will either point to or it will actually have these as divisions in an outline of Genesis. These portions of this scripture that break down genesis by these generations just to give you a brief overview you don't need to turn to these if you want to try and write them down you can but they're pretty easy to find uh, through various sources but here in chapter 2 verse 4 where we have the genealogical record of the creation of man and woman adam and eve The record of man in the creation of the earth and the heavens or the heavens and the earth. Then in Genesis 5.1, so that's the first. In Genesis 5.1, we have the second. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Then we have in Genesis 6.9, these are the generations. You see that repetition there. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and then in Genesis 10:1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 11:10. These are the generations of Shem. Generations Excuse me. Genesis 11:27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Genesis 25, 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Genesis 25, 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Genesis 36, 1, and then also in verse 9 of that chapter, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And the last of which is Genesis 37.2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old. And then following. So this is a division within this. And this breaks down the book of Genesis. But here in Genesis 2.4, we have the start of a focused recounting of the creation of Adam and Eve. And we didn't read to the portion of this chapter where Eve is created. But this is starting in chapter two, verse four, and going all the way through verse 24. I said before, and I'll explain in a little more detail what I meant before, when I made mention of this being a focusing in on the creation account. In Genesis one, through Genesis 2:3. we have an overview, if you will, of creation including the creation of Adam and Eve. It's an overview of that whole creation, not really specific in detail. But in Genesis 2-4, we have the start of that detail focusing in on one, really one particular aspect of of that whole creation. And there is a reason for this. This is God's revelation to man about God's purpose, God's plan, and and the redemption that God will accomplish on behalf of man, which he created. So it's no wonder that he gives us here in this chapter a more detailed account of the creation of the creature which is made in his own image and to whom he is revealing himself through his word given to Moses. Picture this as a great work of art. If you've ever, uh, probably the best one that I know of is in Gettysburg. There's a museum in Gettysburg, and you go up into this museum, and there is this panorama, 360-degree panorama, that shows the whole battle of Gettysburg, the multiple days of it. Think of this creation account in Genesis 1.1 through Genesis 2.3 as a panorama of the creation account. Then it's as if God zooms in on day six here into a particular aspect of day six where he creates Adam and Eve. These are the generations of all mankind. The root genealogy, if you will, of man. Of the creature created in God's image. If you've ever seen what is now called infinite art, has anybody ever seen any of that? Something called infinite art? It's the kind of concept I'm referring to here where I I liken this to God zooming in on that one portion of this panorama. Well, in infinite art, this this new form of digital art has opened up some some new capabilities. So a digital artist will take and, and will draw a picture, sketch a picture on something like an iPad or a tablet or a um, they have these art screens that they make that attach to a computer but you can draw on these with with specialized pencils like an Apple pencil or something like that but then you can zoom in on that so there's this overall picture and then a portion of that picture you can actually go in and digitally zoom into that and it opens up something more there's art within art This is is what Moses is writing for us. Given directly by God of the account of the creation of man. It's like God has given us a magnifying glass where we are to zoom in on a portion of day six. Where he creates man, he forms man, he breathes into man the breath of life and makes Adam a living being places him in the garden that he creates, gives to him Eve. He's providing more detail for us, God is here, on what occurred on day six. This is not an account of another creation. I want to be clear on that. Some would twist it to be a second creation. Uh, I'm not going to take time to go into that or some of the convoluted theories and speculations about this. I will say that quite simply, I think that we are to believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God and what it says. And take it for what it is, an accurate statement of God regarding his creation. And what he, what he is telling us here is that this is the detailed account of the creation of Adam that garden, and then the creation of Eve, as we'll look at hopefully in coming weeks. There is reason why God created, we've stated this before, this is some of that repetition, but it's part of the foundational understanding we have from God that we need to make sure that we are building up that foundation. There's a reason why God created the way that he did, in the manner that he did, so that we might learn the things that we have need of learning. Things that God says is right and good, according to his purpose for man, his purpose for man and a woman, and how a man and woman are to live and how they're to live in a relationship with one another and to have a relationship with their maker, God. And then we are given much further light of these things as this unfolding revelation of God comes to us in the New Testament. We are given further light of these things through the application of these truths even regarding creation from the New Testament writers. So let's take a look at a few things from this portion of Scripture this morning. And as we begin this section in the coming weeks, I pray that we'll be able to to finish it as we approach chapter 3 which details for us the great fall and ensuing chaos that erupts from that fall as declared in Scripture and as we see in every interaction we have with our fellow man. Every interaction and and the evidence that we see of this calamity and the chaos in the world in which we live as a result of what happens in chapter 3 here in genesis first of all genesis 2 4 let's read that again these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the lord god made the earth and the heavens you will notice something is different about the name of god here in this verse than what we have previously read in our look at genesis all through chapter 1 In verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2, God is referred to as God in our translations, which is the Hebrew term Elohim. This is plural with a singular meaning, plural to declare and denote majesty. This is a generic term, though, for deity or for God, and is used many times in various ways in Scripture. But as we said in our look at Genesis 1, that this particular account of Genesis where Moses uses Elohim, the God who created all things, this God who nothing was before him, nothing that was was before him, nothing that is was before him. If anything is, it has been created by him. There's nothing that wasn't created by him. All things were created by him. There's no physical being and no spiritual being that was not created by him. So he may be said to be the God, God of gods. As in Psalm 136 thirty six two, give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. And in Deuteronomy 10, 17, we read, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He is God, Elohim, of all the hosts of heaven and earth. Of all the hosts of heaven, these spiritual beings, he is their God. He is God of all the rulers of the earth who are sometimes mentioned in Scripture as Elohim because they are rulers. But whatever power and authority these hosts of heaven and the rulers of the earth have, they are subject to and subservient to this one true God. But here in chapter 2, verse 4, something else is added to that name he is called the lord god elohim is preceded by lord this is the name the personal name of god jehovah the i am yahweh which distinguishes him from all other this combination of names from moses serves a very important purpose And that is to assert that the person who is the object of Israel's worship is one and the same as this creator, God. It's one and the same. The same as the God who created all things. This God, Elohim, who is their creator, is also their Lord. It is the creator God, the I Am, who Moses reveals here. He is the one who created, and through creation has revealed himself through nature, as Romans 1.20 makes clear to us. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." So he is made known. God is made known through natural revelation as God. But it is insufficient. Insufficient for a full knowledge of who God is. It is for that reason that God then reveals himself to Abraham. And chose this people who Moses, while he is writing this is leading out of bondage in egypt through the wilderness on their way to the country that this god their god yahweh is giving to them he is not only their creator and the creator of all he is their covenant god their redeemer who has revealed himself to these, his chosen people, not just through natural revelation, but also and more importantly, through divine revelation. God came to Abram and revealed himself. In Genesis 12, 1 through 4, we read, Now the Lord, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And in chapter 15, the Lord reveals himself again to Abram and makes a covenant with him. And even further is that revelation made in Genesis 22, when God provides a picture of who he is to his people in providing a sacrifice for them. Ending in the promise once again of blessing Yahweh's people. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, God tells him, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the offspring. This is the offspring which we will see first appear in Genesis three fifteen. When God says, I will put enmity between you and And the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, that's the seed, he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God then further reveals himself through divine revelation to the writer of this book, Moses, from out of a burning bush. He speaks to Moses and reveals his name. In Exodus 3, 14 through 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And then in the verses we read earlier in our congregational reading from Exodus 6, 1 through 8. Turn back there with me. Exodus 6, 1 through 8. I had dad read this in the Legacy Standard Version because of its uh, translation of lord exodus 6 1 through 8 but the lord said to moses now you shall see what i will do to pharaoh for with a strong hand he will send them out and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land god spoke to moses and said to him i am the lord that's i am yahweh I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Verse 2 of that passage, he declares to Moses that he is the I am. He appeared to those who came before him, but he did not make known to them his personal name. Yet he establishes his covenant with them. So tell the people that are enslaved in Egypt, God says, tell them, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out. I will deliver you. From slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then, what do we later read in the writings of Moses? We looked at this last week in Deuteronomy 5 12 through 15, in reference to that rest that we looked at last week. Moses records observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the lord the i am yahweh your god brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the lord god your god commanded you to keep the sabbath it is this one this lord this yahweh this covenant god that moses declares to us in our text of genesis 2:4 these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day the lord god made the earth and the heavens it is not just the creator god who winds us up and lets us wind ourselves down into nothingness he is not just creator he is not just elohim The God, he is their God. He is our God. The I am, Yahweh, the Lord God, their creator and their redeemer. This is a name of knowing him. This is a name of being in an ongoing relationship, a covenant relationship with him, with their Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D which is Yahweh. Moses is stressing this, and he will continue to stress this throughout his writing. Robert Hawker, in the Poor Man's Commentary, no idea why it's named that. It is far from a poor man's commentary. I would recommend it to any and to all. But he says regarding the use of this name, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And the first time it is used, which we come across in scripture today. He says, the reader would do well to pause over it with profound reverence and to seek grace from God, who alone can impart information concerning himself to the mind that they may have a proper conception of the meaning of the expression so that in this passage of the divine word and in every other where it occurs, he may be brought under suitable impressions. Who is it that we are talking about here this morning when we say the Lord God? He is the creator who has divinely revealed himself to us as our God. This name is the incommunicable name of Jehovah, his own personal name, denoting that he is the I am. He is the eternal, the unchanging, the never beginning, the never ending, self-existent, altogether independent, self-satisfied, omnipotent, omniscient God in a God-initiated covenant. With his people, promising and performing what is needed and what is lacking on their behalf and giving to them blessings. Blessings full of grace and mercy which they do not deserve. This is our God. For the sake of time, we'll not deal with verse 5 and 6. If you have questions about these verses, uh, please come to me and we'll discuss them or we can discuss them during our Sunday afternoon fellowship. There are some things that we can greatly benefit from by looking at these verses. But the gist of what this passage is dealing with is not in relation to those verses, but in relation to what those verses lead up to. In Genesis 2, 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This Lord God, this Yahweh Elohim, formed the man of dust from the ground. This great God, this master craftsman, formed the man of dust from dirt. Do you grasp what lowly materials we are made of? Dirt. The richest king, the poorest pauper, the most well-known and famous, the most unknown hermit, the mightiest of all warriors, and the weakest of all the lame are all but dust. All but dust. And the dust they will return. That is what God will tell Adam later. In Genesis 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face, after the fall, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Calvin says that lest man become swelled with pride at his being created in the image of God their first origin is placed immediately before them. For Moses relates that man had been, in the beginning, dust of the earth. And Calvin then says, let foolish men now go and boast of the excellency of their nature. They're but dust. Well, man is but dust but he is dust that is formed by the Lord God. This word formed has the idea that this act of creation of man was by careful design. It was by intense intent. The same word was used in Genesis 6-5 about something negative where it's recorded for us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention, intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, that's what is coming across in the Lord God formed the man of dust. It was his intent. It was by intent that he formed him in the way that he did. God is the divine potter here who intends to mold man from the dust of the earth. And this potter works out this intent to form man and accomplishes that which was his intent. We said, I think it was last week, that there is nothing that God intended to do in creation that he could not and did not accomplish. We have that in the case of man Man is no mere afterthought to creation. This is not what God has purposed and given to Moses to record. He took his hands, as it were, the Lord God masterfully and purposefully informs man. He molds man. He molds his shape in his body in an intricate way. Each layer of flesh forming from the dust of the earth. The bones, the blood vessels, the tissue, the organs, all laid out in their respective places and fastened together. Bone together with bone and sinew and skin covering them and binding them together to make a body. Nothing haphazard, nothing that is unneeded, yet nothing left out, fearfully And wonderfully made or formed. Constructed. The work of the master molder. But this body is yet without life. It is not animated. It is not living or moving. Then the Lord God as it were. Stoops down to that form of man. That he had just made and molded. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man of dust became a living being. God gives man life. The spirit, the breath of God moves upon him and quickens that dust that was formed. And this man, Adam. Is made alive miraculous we see the effects of it in every person that we see moving but we don't understand it our minds don't have the ability to grasp the miracle that takes place in the giving of life we must remain content to see it as somewhat of a mystery somewhat of a mystery It's miraculous, no different than creation itself, out of nothing. Science cannot and will never be able to explain it. It is miraculous. The attempts at explaining it have led to utter futility and are largely in direct contempt and disregard for what our text says. Man was formed by God. Not by chance. Chance holds no power. R.C. Sproul on the 14th of December died six years ago. And one thing I will never forget him saying was chance is a no thing. It's nothing. It holds no power. It has no substance. It can't affect anything. It's a nothing. It's not by evolution that man has been made. Man came from dust, not from a process of evolving from a blob into an ape and finally into a man. Man doesn't return to an ape, man returns to what? Dust. God formed man and God breathed life into man. no accident that this is so, no process of change or billions of years. The Lord God chose to make the crowning display of His creative power from the lowliest of materials and bring it to life so that the power and the glory should echo back to Him throughout all eternity. He took that which was nothing, dirt, made a clay pot, an earthen vessel, and then he breathed life into it. Show me a single, solitary master craftsman anywhere in the world in any time who can do such a thing. You'll never find it. It's God alone who can do this. He gets the glory and all the honor and all the praise For the Lord God alone is worthy of praise. So why is this important? Why is it important that we understand this? Why is it important that God chose to reveal this to us? Why is it given to us in Scripture? well, in danger of being repetitive in future messages that I pray God will allow us to get to, man who was brought to life from the dust is going to die as a result of the fall. And yes, all men will physically die at some point, but as a result of the fall, men are born a physically living creature but a living creature in a state of spiritual death and alienation from the Lord God. And if they are not reborn, they will enter into eternal death. This is exactly what Jesus was saying in John 3. This is exactly it. Look with me in John 3. This is one of the reasons John 3.16 is so taken out of context. They missed the first part of John 3. Jesus is speaking here in John 3 to Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. The ruler of the Jews. And he says that he must be born again. Which leaves Nicodemus in absolute and utter confusion. (laughs) He didn't see himself as a dead sinner. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was an Israelite of the Israelites. He didn't think he was outside the kingdom of God. Which causes Jesus to tell Nicodemus in John 3, 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water Do you see the connection here? The Spirit of God must come again and breathe into the dead body of dust, the breath of life. If this doesn't happen, if this does not happen, we are all just dead men walking. Our first birth because of Adam's sin left us just as Adam was, a man of dust, in need of the Spirit to work and make us a living creature. What was Christ Jesus alluding to when he was speaking? I said this a long time ago. I, for, for years, didn't, didn't get what he was referring to here in this passage in John 3. What was he alluding to when he was speaking to Nicodemus? He was alluding to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. God's chosen nation, Israel, had become altogether wicked and moved God to wrath. They were his people by name, but their hearts were far from him, their hearts were wicked. They were dead to him. They did not seek him. They did not follow him. They didn't obey him. So we read in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-two. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Thus says the Lord God, thus says Yahweh, the covenant God, the I am. Look at Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-five through twenty-seven. I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your, all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Spirit is the same word as breath. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules, he is going to send out his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to breathe into God's people. Life. Life. He's going to rip out the old dead heart, and put in a heart of flesh, a heart that is beating, a heart that is alive. Don't you see here? Look. Look at. What, what does this look like? What is the picture of this? You only have to go to the next chapter in Ezekiel to see the picture of this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, "O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. And you shall, what? Live. And I will lay sinews upon you and, you. and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. There was no life in them. No breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. We're nothing but dust. Scattered dust. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, thus says Yahweh, their covenant God, their Redeemer. Behold, I will open your graves. And will raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Born again. Given life. The Spirit moving and breathing into them life. Don't you see what God has shown us in the creation of the first Adam? He is showing us through the creation that comes from the second Adam, from the last Adam. Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, working through what Jesus Christ accomplished. Is what gives us life. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. You must, what, what do you tell Nicodemus? You must be born. Again, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you see why we must hold to the teachings that are given to us in Scripture about creation, the creation of Adam? The first birth of man in the garden was all of God. All of God. And the second birth... Is all of God. Is it any wonder that we're told we have this treasure. In earthen vessels. In jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. And not to us. Nothing but dirt. Nothing but clay pots. Earthen vessels. Jars of clay. But formed by the master craftsman and brought to life by this master for the master's use so that the glory may go to him in the second birth just like it did in the first birth of Adam in creation when God breathed into him life so that the power is shown to belong to him and not to us So that the glory goes to him and not to us. So that the praise always goes to him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've had to look into it, Lord. We thank you for the Spirit who gives life. For Christ, whose death brought redemption and satisfaction for the sins that we've committed and the wrath of God that was bearing down upon us because of them. We thank you that we're not left with just the first Adam, but that we might have life in the second. Make us grateful, make us humble, and may all that we do be to seek to to seek to glorify you, to honor you, and to point to you. We thank you and we praise you. It's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.